12-year-old Craig Brown is a high achiever at one of the country's top schools. He's smart, he's popular, and he's adored by his family. He's an exuberant boy who dreams of going straight to the big time as a high-flying lawyer. And then a series of inexplicable events turns Craig's world inside out. He develops academic problems, he becomes the school bully, there's vomiting, migraines and facial paralysis, and an MRI scan reveals that a cancerous tumour the size of a golf ball is slowly colonising Craig's bright young brain. And now his parents must confront a grim reality that their child's high school years will be spent fighting for his life. There's a new book, it's called The Twinkling of an Eye. It's Craig's story told through the eyes of his mother, Sue Brown, and she joins me in studio now. Sue, good evening, welcome to the show. Hi, Corin. Thanks so much for having me. I have to tell you, I found this book to be an incredibly powerful story of courage and perseverance. I mean, everything possible. Craig was, by all accounts, the most remarkable child. Craig was a very powerful personality, a very charismatic personality. So I think just from when he was born, I, I remember often looking at him and thinking, where did you come from? <laughs> and kind of, what, what, where are you going with all this energy, all this charisma, one of his teachers once complimented me on teaching him such a great assertiveness, and I just laughed. I said that he taught me assertiveness. Yeah. He, he just never seemed to be destined for anything ordinary or mediocre. He seemed to have a very busy, full life at, from a young child. He, he wasn't going to sit still for anything. He wasn't. I Actually, I have an older daughter, and then two years later I had Craig, and I, I sometimes said, you know, it felt like four children. I had one, and then the next three were Craig. <laughs> <laughs> he had that much energy, and that's how much space he took up in our house. And the problem started, I mean, he was doing very well at school. He had, as, as you can pick up the whole way through the book, and especially at the end of the book, he had the most remarkable group of friends. He seemed to attract remarkable young people to him. And this, this, I think, was what kept him going a lot of the time through the, the hard times were his friends. They were a remarkable little bunch of boys. They were just, they stuck with him. They were incredibly loyal. Most of them were quite different to him. He was very domineering in the little friendship group. It used to worry me that he was very bossy. And yet when he died, the one mom said to me, her son said they were a bit lost at break time because Craig used to... Um, get them all to open their lunch boxes, and he would organise all the swaps. And <laughs> to his to his advantage, he would come home with the chips and the chocolate wrappers, <laughs> and then he'd tell them it was time to go and play soccer, and that they missed him organising them. But they really did. They stuck with him. They came to visit him throughout his treatments, even in his terminally ill in hospice, and even at home when he was semi-conscious, they'd come and sit next to his bed and tell him what was happening with Man United on TV. When did this, the problems suddenly surface? Because it seemed to come almost slowly over a period of time. It, it was a lot of it misdiagnosed initially. Craig complained of nausea on and off for possibly even 18 months. It was one of those vague symptoms that we don't really pay that much attention to. It was usually in the mornings before school. When it went on for a little while, I took him to the GP, and the GP said, oh, sounds like he doesn't really want to go to school. He's a very competitive child. He puts a lot of pressure on himself. It's probably anxiety. So he, we actually took him off to the child psychologist to help with the anxiety, and he loved that because he always loved talking about <laughs> himself. So he would sort of bend her ear for an hour at least and tell her all his stories. But the nausea, it, it kind of came and went, which is why I think we didn't take it seriously enough. Craig was also a very dramatic person. He wasn't, if he was feeling not that well or not that happy about something, he would tell you all about it. So I think sort of minor coming and going symptoms, I tended to dismiss it for longer than I probably should have. 
you became quite concerned when his personality as such changed at school and you were starting to get reports of things that I don't think in your wildest dreams you would ever have imagined you'd hear. That was very disturbing. I mean, Craig always said he used to kind of think aloud. So he used to say what he wanted to say. But as he got older, he'd learned sort of social norms of thinking and learning to use your words cleverly and wisely. And then a, a mom of one of his friends kept phoning me and saying that he's being unkind to her child at school. He's picking on him with verbal bullying, essentially. And I kept speaking to him and saying, did Craig, did you say this? And he'd say yes. And I'd say, well, why would you say something like that? And he, he kept saying, I don't know. You know. Now and then, if I really pushed it, he'd get quite tearful because obviously on some, it was confusing him as well. And you decided to do what after that because it became an issue? Yeah. Well, we had said to the school, we, we, we'd said to the school, please, obviously, if this is what he's doing, they have very good policies in place that it needs to be addressed by the school, by the school counsellor, that if punishment is due, that's that's what mis- that they must follow all their normal procedures. And that is what happened because he was warned not to say unkind things to his child and then he finally did again and the housemaster phoned me and said he has said he's sort of said some maligned this child again and that he's now been given a social suspension which is a pretty dramatic punishment at his school and my son hated getting into trouble he would usually do his utmost not to so it was very distressing when I was taking I took him back to the child psychologist and she even started saying maybe he needed behavior modifying drugs which really alarmed me as a mother your mind starts sort of catastrophizing and thinking what... When did you realise that there was something more going on here? There was a morning in December when we were going out to a a bride friend's and I went past the bathroom and there was a little bit of vomit in the loo and I said to Craig, but there's vomit in the loo. And he looked at me and he said, but mum, I've told you I've been feeling sick, I've been swallowing vomit, sort of rolled his eyes at me and I just, then in the pit of my stomach, I just knew actually... The, the, the little the, the behavioural and the nausea problems just started to come together a little bit. And it was at this point that you found some amazing medical people. I mean, the, some of the doctors that you interacted with were actually quite remarkable. Some Yeah, very. Once, once he was diagnosed, they were just astonishing. Just in terms of their respect for Craig, the way in which they spoke to him, in which they kind of honoured the fact that this terrible diagnosis was what well, the impact it was would be would have on him that he was 12 that he would understand what it was all about and just the way that instead of sort of speaking through us as his parents they spoke to Craig they asked him the doctor said you know there is this tumor in your brain I'll need to do an operation to get rid of it is that okay with you and waited for an answer and Craig sat and thought and he looked at the doctor and he said it's this thing's caused me a lot of trouble yes you can (laughs) he then asked if he would please once it was out give it to him in a bottle he wanted to smash it up which the neurosurgeon said very gently he'd have to take it out in little bits but he promised to do it on Craig's behalf so there was a lot of cognizance right from the beginning of the emotional impact it would have on a child. You don't often find that with the medical profession that they tend to talk over you even as a grown-up older than Craig, they often just assume things on your behalf. So it's really nice to know that they took his feelings and his wishes into account. It, it was very, and I think right from the beginning, the fact that he had some control, he had choices, that he was, even when he had the radiation after the surgeries, that the oncologist asked, explained all the possible side effects to him and said that, you know, he needed to sign for his consent. It made a huge difference. He was a very strong and brave young man. He, he really was. I mean, at that point, I don't think mom was, you know, needed in, in inverted commas to as much as, as you possibly would have liked to have been or that possibly he needed you. But when it came to the radiation, 
you needed to be with him and he needed you to be there. I think even from when he was having scans, I think when you're in a room like that, I would mm. sit there and just sort of put my hand on his shin. Although being a very independent child, I had to be very careful that I wasn't kind of overdoing it. I remember from when he was about three, I planted a kiss on his cheek at his preschool. And oh he sort of very theatrically wiped it <laughs> off in front of everybody else. So. But when he was obviously sick again, then he did want me near again. So you have to kind of, you had to play it quite carefully. There was a, there was a very uh, interesting part in the book, I think, and his sister actually comments on the fact that he came up to her at one point and planted this big kiss on her yeah. cheek and he never does that she even she wrote it at the back of the book she writes Absolutely. her story basically and she mentions it again there that this was quite something for him to have done mm. that he was always a very demanding of attention but he wasn't a touchy-feely kind of child mm. I remember his aunt who's his godmother once sort of pinning him down on the couch saying she was determined to give him a hug he just wasn't but on the weekend he'd had really bad scans on the Friday evening. The doctors were meeting on the Monday, and that weekend it was it hadn't been said yet, but it was obvious that he was now going to die from the brain tumour. And just before going to bed, he walked up to his sister and he stood on his toes and he, because he, he was very short, <laughs> and gave her this kiss and a hug, and he stood back and he looked so pleased with himself. He had this huge grin and he said, I've never done that before, <laughs> and then went upstairs to bed. Yeah. It was a bit of a roller coaster ride for you because at one point in the beginning you thought that everything was going to be okay. Absolutely. I, I think he was, it was an unusual type of tumor. He was given a, a, as the oncologist said, you know, statistics are not that reliable, but we always ask for statistics and they gave him a 60% chance of never having a recurrence. If they could get it out surgically, if they could radiate efficiently, which they did amazingly a 60% chance of it not coming back. We did discover subsequently that that type of tumor has now been reclassified. And the world specialist on that type of tumor said that Craig's was the sixth ever that's behaved in this incredibly aggressive way. But in a way, I'm glad we didn't know that because it gave Craig those six months. He was the king. He got all the attention. He reveled in it. A good six hopeful months of taking stock of lives and what was important and saying things to people that he needed to say. I think to be given that devastating diagnosis right at the beginning, I feel for people who get that, who don't have that bit of time of maybe we're going to get the, you know beat this thing. Well, he even made his sort of stage debut. It was something that he really enjoyed he doing. He did, he did. And just before, in fact, a week before he was finally unconscious, he was actually on his school tour and he Yes, in played, Durban he, he went, He played yes. tennis, he played chess matches. He was very sleepy, but he loved his marimba band. And actually, if we'd known what was coming, we wouldn't have done all those things. So, yeah, we're grateful we had those six months of... It, it was hope, but the oncologists were very honest with us that there are no promises. But you're he lived you're living with a very unknown beast with a tumor. Mm, but he lived yeah. those six months to the fullest. Made every Absolutely. moment. Every, he made the best of every moment he had, basically. Absolutely. And typical, typical Craig style. He said he thought he should put a little bowl next to his bed, and anybody who'd been cross with him when he was behaving badly needed could just, if they were feeling bad, they could put in a little donation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, incredible child. Yeah. So you, you came to the end. I mean, you had quite a, also a ride through the hospital system. Mm. Some of it was pleasant. Some of it was a little bit sketchy. I, I was very angry at parts of in the book thinking, mm. how on earth can people do things like this? I think when one's in that really sensitive space with a dying child, you're in such a, you are in a very, very, very sensitive space. So I think that if you invite people into that space, people you know, then they're very welcome. But I found that some people had this 
perhaps other people hadn't we were coming to terms with the fact that he wasn't going to get better and accepting that from a faith point of view that that was what Craig was destined for, that that was where his life was going. But people who didn't even know him or us or anything about his condition who'd heard of it, there just seemed to be the odd person that for what probably their personal reasons felt that they needed to come and play, pray for a miracle. And it just felt incredibly intrusive. Uh, luckily, the oncologist actually arrived one day when one of these people came and she was great because I said to her, I'm, I'm actually just accepting that for me this is what God's purpose was for my child, that he's not going to get better. And she said to me she thought that that was the greater achievement than to be sort of holding out for a miracle, to actually accept that he was going to have a short life. And, yeah, so it's part of the journey, I think, of learning. And for me, I was obviously, it makes one re examine one's own faith. And so for other people who come in like that, to a degree, I was also kind of reflecting on where I was at. And I did thankfully have medical staff who I could just say politely, do you mind just asking this person to go, that it's not a good time to be here. The one thing that you do speak uh, talk about quite a lot in the book, well, towards the end of the book, obviously, is is Craig's time at hospice and how that impacted to the fact that you now volunteering at hospice as yourself. As, as a result of what happened to Craig, I'd actually... I'm a physio by training, but I had never actually had dealings with hospice myself and with terminally ill and palliative care, the whole palliative care world. And I must say, once we knew Craig wasn't getting better anymore, hospital just really wasn't the right place to be anymore, certainly not an ICU, that busy, noisy, intense environment. And my husband, the oncologist suggested we just go and meet with the doctor at hospice. And I went there and I just felt like I'd been given a parachute because we felt at that time, you just discovered our son's actually dying. You feel as if you're in a free fall. And I just walked in there and I felt like I could breathe, that these people around me were themselves at peace with the fact that we don't live forever. And they were going to help us do this thing because we knew we had to do it, but they were the right kind of support. And Craig came home towards the end as well. He did. He Strangely, even just before he lost consciousness, he kept just saying to us, I, need, I want to go home, I want to go home. But because he was suddenly unconscious, needed specialized feeding and nursing, we had a two-week period at the hospice where they where we got on top of all of that, where they helped us, where they taught the carers. And then when we they enabled him to be at home because the nursing sister would come and pop in and manage his treatment at home. And then his friends could come and visit and... Although he was semi-conscious, he definitely knew he was at home. And Craig left us, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, he, was, he was just, I think, just 13 when he... When it he, was 12 days after, after his, his birthday. 13th birthday, mm. yeah. So he yeah. had his last birthday and then he left. Yeah. And the impact must have been incredible. And as I, I mentioned to you before we came on air this evening, mm. reading the book, as I said, I found an incredibly powerful story, but there was one part towards the end when Craig died and his dad wanted to himself carry him out of the house. Even talking about it now, it's upsetting me. Um, I found that to be an incredibly emotion-filled moment. And you say you told me it was hard for you. You wouldn't have really wanted him to do that. I think it was just such an incredibly poignant gesture that he wanted to make. Thankfully, the wonderful St. Luke's nursing sister was sitting with me and she said, you know what, it's what his dad needs to do let him do it. Um, yeah, if they, were, if they were going to take his body out, it was through the back door on a trolley, and my husband just said, no, he's, I'm carrying him out through the front door. 
And the hospice nurse was amazing. She sat with me on the couch while I bawled my eyes out, put her arm around me, and Neil carried him out because he needed to. And yeah, I think it's part of our upbringing that we tend to, through the whole journey with a terminal person, we avoid those very emotional, moving moments because we don't want to cry, we don't want to get emotional. And yet it's exactly what Neil needed to do, and it's exactly what Craig would have expected of his father. <laughs> he wouldn't have expected any less. He wouldn't have wanted to be taken out the back. You know, it was it was what needed to be done. So thankfully there was this wonderful, wise sister who could sit with me while Neil did what he what he needed to do, what he wanted to do for his son. And Craig has left an incredible mark on his friends. I think they've, they've, there's a tribute little garden at the school oh, fabulous, and every yeah. year they go up with the balloons and they yeah. all gather and you've got photographs of them doing that in the book we do and craig actually died in his grade seven year at the prep school and they planted a tree we put a little bench around it and every year since then on his birthday his friends who had now moved on to high school would come back and they'd fill it with balloons and they'd write messages and they'd draw smiley faces on the balloons and have a little tea afterwards and they actually did it throughout their high school years. And even this last year, it's their first year out of school. And these students doing gap years, whatever they're doing, they're still gathered at the tree, the same little group. This year was the first year I was brave enough to go and join them on his birthday. And it was very special. There was another little, a little schoolboy came across. He must have been about nine with sort of the muddy knees and everything. And he stood there in his uniform and looked at all these great big chaps and said, can anybody tell me what's going on here? <laughs> So one of them turned around and said, no, that this boy had died in grade seven, and that's why they come back every year on his birthday. So this little guy counted on his fingers and said, so this tree is six years old, he said, and then sort of nodded his head and walked off. It was so like Craig would have been. Craig would have gone and said, excuse me, but please tell me what's what going doing? on here. <laughs> and as I mentioned, you now, it's almost a case of giving back in a way, is, is yourself working with people at hospice. Yeah, It, it just, must be a... Re a how difficult is that for you? But on the other hand, how rewarding is it for you? It, hospice just made all the difference to Craig's last weeks, to us as his family, to his friends, to actually know, learn how to integrate loss into life, how to carry on with life in a way that honors Craig. And yeah, I just feel so strongly that that should be available for everybody who finds themselves in that awful place. We were fortunate that we actually had private medical care, but private medical care does not do what hospice does. Just that same, that incredible multidisciplinary support of the family, of the friends. They would go and speak to his grade at school. And just in terms of how we've all learned to honor Craig, to carry on living, to do things that Craig would appreciate and enjoy, we, that wouldn't have happened without hospice. The thing about hospice, as far as I am aware, is mm -hmm. that if you can't afford to pay for hospice they don't turn you away if you Not have got sure. a medical aid yeah. who will contribute that's fine but you don't need to be flush with money to be able to be helped by hospice. that was one of the things that struck me the most it doesn't matter if you're living in bishop's court or you're living in a shack somewhere your treatment your care the dignity with which you're treated is exactly the same and we just that's such a rare thing to see these days i, I loved that when craig was in the ward because life, death is such a leveling thing. It actually, and actually, what we all need and want is the same thing. We want to be pain free. We want to be comfortable. We want to have our families around us. We want to be cared for at home, whether home is very big and grand or whether home is is a very poor. Whatever home is, your heart is. Your family is there, and yeah. And I just think it's remarkable that an institution can manage to give that level of care to everybody, regardless of means.
Yeah. Now, as I mentioned right at the very beginning, you've written all about this. The book is called The Twinkling of an Eye. What got you started on writing the book? I think after a trauma like losing a child, and I'm sure there are other traumas that have the same effect, my brain just felt scrambled. And I was trying to make sense of how I was feeling, to try and find words for those feelings. So I was reading the books of anybody else that I could find that chronicled loss of various types. And then I just automatically started teasing out words almost, finding words that other people use that I would go, that's what it is. That's what this feels like. And then I just slowly started writing my own version of it. And also just because in, in the fact, although my son was dying, that he was poten well, potentially going to die, and then we knew he was going to die, it was also just such an extreme time of living. And those incredible people we met. I wanted to pay tribute to my son for the way he coped with it, to those medical professions who were just brilliant. And yeah, so it was it was partly a record and partly for me to actually find words to explain how I was feeling and to try and I think after such a loss, you become a new person. And I was trying to work out who I was and what I was going to do going forward and what was going to make my life meaningful. The one yeah. thing that that actually resonated with me in here, I have a friend who lost a child and she, the one thing she always said to me was when she went out afterwards into society basically or into a shop mm. she, she she always said to me how can these people be walking around as if nothing's happened do they not realize I've lost my child and I think there's a little bit of that in your book as well where everybody else is sort of getting on with their day or not quite knowing what to say to you or either avoiding you it's, it's a very difficult time when you're suddenly back in the world mm. and people don't know how to respond or how to relate to you anymore it was very interesting once the story had been written because there's some things in there that sometimes they're just too painful to speak about and when, when I, once I had written them and other people had read them it was as if we'd had a conversation sometimes even with closest family members those really painful things even when the grandmothers read this book there were things in there they didn't know so it, it brought everybody closer I think there was a communication that was going on in fact somebody said to my husband she said I've been avoiding your wife I didn't know how to speak to her but I've read the book now now we can chat so, I think people yeah. don't quite know where to start and yeah. I think a lot of the time too scared to say anything in case they offend you or upset you or you know it's, yeah. it's a very difficult time for you as well to yeah. because you don't want people all over you all the time either you or yeah. still I think in the very early stages dealing with the loss yeah and yet at the same time I think you really appreciate well certainly say when Craig was sick the people that used to even little boys used to come and ring the doorbell <laughs> to come and visit that's a really brave thing to do to go into the space of somebody who is grieving because you are so sensitive if someone said to me the sun was shining today it would probably be offensive <laughs> at that stage so it's I think people are really brave and people I think people are really hard on themselves sometimes saying I'm sure I said the wrong thing and I'm going to say the wrong thing but the fact that you've been brave enough to come into their presence and acknowledge the loss means a huge deal. And I think you, you also realize that it's coming from a good place. And often we say the wrong things because we're trying to make somebody feel better. We, we, we find it really hard to sit with their pain. So we'll, I do it myself, even having been through this, I'll gabble on and say something really stupid or inappropriate because I'm finding the sitting with their pain really hard. I have to keep going back to those young boys, the friends of Craig. I mean, remarkable young men. They're, I'm sure they've turned out to be quite remarkable. They are. I'm very interested to see. Well, they're all young adults now and, yeah, strong men. Their counsellor at their school said to them, you know, this thing with Craig, it'll be a scar on your heart. You'll carry it always, but you will go forward and you will... Because they went through the grief, they've integrated it. They lost their son. One did an amazing play at school. He 
wrote it, the script was based on a boy who's finding his identity, having lost a friend. So in their own ways, they've all they've dealt with it. Yeah. So the book is available, Sue, The Twinkling of an Eye. It's published by Human and Rousseau, available in all good bookstores now. Yes, and also um, online as well. Where would they find yeah. it online? Well, they can order it through Take a Lot and Loot, and it's also available through Amazon in the EU version. I'd highly recommend this. It's the most amazingly powerful, emotion-filled book, and it, it will it'll change your mind about a lot of things that you possibly thought about and possibly open your, your eyes to a lot of things that we sometimes don't like to look at. So a really powerful book. And Sue, congratulations on that and for putting the story of Craig so well in this book. I really... I'm, I'm gabbling now because I really, I, I don't quite know whether to say I enjoyed the book because mm. it's kind of the wrong word. I just found it a very powerful experience to have read the book. So thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for reading it. I, yeah, I think when people read a very sad, people are worried, are frightened of reading sad stories. But partly what I was trying to write in the book, and I think the feedback I'm getting as people are hearing is that there's also light in it, yes, that there is hope, hope, that, that there, there is yes. joy. And it's actually also about appreciating life. And living it properly. It's all in there. Yeah. It's all I in there. So. <laughs> so you'll find all of that. So go out and get yourself a copy. Sue, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Thank you so much. The Twinkling of an Eye, as I've mentioned, it's written by Sue Brown. It's published by Human and Rousseau. It's available in all good bookstores and also online, Take A Lot, Loot and Amazon. So go and get yourself a copy. As I said, it's a very powerful, emotion-filled book, but you will learn an awful lot from Craig's story.